to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We've been in chapter 8 here now a couple of weeks, and we're going to start here in just a moment in verse 27. Verse 27, so find your way to that particular verse. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever climbed to the top of a mountain? And I'm not talking about Pikes Peak in your station wagon. I'm talking about physical hiking. You know, the thing about climbing a peak is when you get to the top, you have this just marvelous panoramic view. It's always glorious. And you feel big because of the accomplishment, but at the same time, you feel really, really small because of the vast wilderness that's sort of just rolled out in front of you. And if you've ever made it to a summit, you, of course, remember the view. You know, you can see one side of the mountain, sort of the way you came up, and then you turn, and you also see the other side, the side that's been hidden from view as you sort of gasped and strained to get to the top. You know, seeing that other side is a great reward for what's usually an hours-long hike. And if you've ever crested a peak on the Continental Divide in Colorado, you, you know that the divide is given its name because, because water runs east off the eastern slope of the divide, making its way you know, to the gulf or to the ocean, or it runs west off the western slope of the divide, making its way to the Pacific Ocean. It, it's quite literally this range that divides North America in half. And I bring that up today because our text is the continental divide of Mark's gospel. Everything we have read and studied thus far has led us to the confession that we're going to read of the Apostle Peter in verse 30. Everything we've studied has been a climb up the western slope with Peter's answer being the peak. And then following his confession in verse 30, everything following all the way to chapter and through chapter 15 is going to run the other direction, and that is the direction of the cross. So let's read Mark chapter 8, again starting in verse 27. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Is there a more important question in the universe than the question that we have in verses 28 and 29? Who do you say that I am? No. There is no more important question 
than that question. Or said another way, there is no more crucial answer than your answer to that question. How you answer that question means everything for your life and for your eternity. Everything. You can't stay neutral on Jesus. You just can't. You can't just sort of like Jesus. Everything about what he said and everything about what he did compels you to either worship him or deny him. Worship him or deny him. I compiled some quotations from well-known individuals in history, and they are answering sort of this question from Jesus. Consider these thoughts. First, we have Mikhail Gorbachev. Remember Mikhail Gorbachev at the big birthmark right about here? He said, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. British author H.G. Wells says, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Prince Philip of England, born in 1921, he said that Jesus is best described as an underprivileged working-class victim of political and religious persecution. Mark Twain, humorously, he said, if Christ were here now, there is one thing he would not be, a Christian. Fyodor Dostoevsky, Russian author, he said, I believe there is no one deeper, no one lovelier, more sympathetic, and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there never could be anyone like him again. Albert Einstein, he said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful they may be. Theologian S.D. Gordon says, Jesus is God spelling himself out in language that men can understand. So who do you say that I am? That's the climactic end to the first half of Mark's gospel. That's the question that Mark has led us to in these first eight chapters. His account of Jesus has tried to answer that question in advance of Peter's response. The Holy Spirit, through Mark, has revealed Jesus to be awesomely and absolutely authoritative in all his words and deeds. A king with power and might over every realm, the realm of nature, the realm of religion, the spiritual dimension, as well as the physical dimension. A king with such authority in his teaching that people listen to him, and the text says that they are astonished. Teaching had never astonished people before. The teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, the traditions of the elders, their teaching had burdened people and enslaved people and exhausted people, but it had never astonished people. The truth coming out of the mouth of Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, they knew, they knew it was the very word of God. So in the passage I just read, Jesus leaves the town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a village by the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida means fish house. 
It sat right along the point where the Jordan River entered into the Sea of Galilee. Jesus takes his disciples from Bethsaida, where he just healed a blind man, and he heads straight north to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was the northernmost point in the land of Israel. It was near the site of the ancient city of Dan. In the Old Testament, when the Promised Land was described, its northern and southernmost points were said to be from Dan to Beersheba. Dan to the north, Beersheba to the south. So Caesarea Philippi was, was, was in Jesus' day, it was in the Tetrarchy of Herod Philip. Remember, Herod the Great died in 4 BC. He divided up his kingdom between his sons. So Philip was one of those sons. And as a way to curry favor with Rome, Philip named this spot after Caesar. It also made sense to name the city after Caesar because Caesarea Philippi was home to a great temple that was dedicated to the worship of Caesar, Caesar Augustus. His reign is when it was built. Again, you remember, emperors in Rome were not just political or military rulers. They were worshipped as gods. So Caesarea Philippi, a Roman city, largely Gentile, a place of emperor worship. And Caesarea Philippi is not to be confused with Caesarea by the sea. That was a large port city on the coast of the Mediterranean. So a different Caesarea. And I know all these places and names often just sort of mesh together. And you're like, gosh, why can't these things just be simpler? Why can't they have a different name? Well, we do this too. I mean, think about the city named Columbus. I mean, we have Columbuses everywhere. Georgia and Indiana and Mississippi and Ohio and Nebraska and Wisconsin and Texas. I mean, there's, we do this too. So... It's going on in the first century. You have Caesarea by the Sea and Caesarea Philippi. And another interesting geographic feature, Caesarea Philippi was at the base of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon was an almost 10,000-foot peak. So it was about a 25-mile trip north for Jesus and his disciples. And in that 25 miles, the elevation would go from 700 feet below sea level that was where we were at, the Sea of Galilee, to almost 10,000 feet above sea level at the top of Mount Hermon. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic rise. That would be like 10,000 feet elevation gain from here to Pond Creek. I mean, that's extreme, right? And Caesarea had a long, long history of paganism and idolatry. There were all sorts of temples and shrines located there. There were springs that flowed from the base of Mount Hermon. Those were the headwaters to the Jordan River. And following the conquests of Alexander the Great, about 300 years before Jesus' day, this area was the center of of cult worship for the Ptolemaic branch of the Greek Empire. And they had named the area Panius. They named it after one of their gods, Pan, this sort of mythical half-man, half-goat who played a flute. It's where we get our name for the Pan flute, going all the way back to this this pagan god Pan. It's very strange, I realize. And it says Jesus, it says he and his twelve, as they're making their way to Caesarea, that Jesus begins to ask the disciples some questions. So we have the rabbi, the teacher, he's, he's turning the tables on the students. He's the one asking questions. And that brings us to the outline in your notes. As this exchange takes place, we'll see that Peter and his fellow disciples, in answering these questions, they're right about the person of Jesus, but they're wrong about the plan of Jesus. Right about the person, verses 28 through 30, wrong about 
the plan, verses 31 through 33. So let's look at that first point, right about the person. Here Jesus, he asks sort of the same question two different ways. He asks first, who do people say that I am? What are people saying and believing about me? Not the scribes, not the Pharisees, but the people. This word is intentionally connected to the masses of people in Israel who have been making their way to see Jesus and to be healed by Jesus and to hear the teaching of Jesus. Who do people say that I am? And why does Jesus ask this? I mean, he's been everywhere the disciples have been. He knows what the perceptions and the opinions are. He knows what's being said of him. Why this question? He knows what the people are saying. Bible scholar D. Edmund Hebert explains in his commentary on Mark that Jesus is asking the twelve about the opinions of the masses to help the disciples see the inadequacies of those different opinions. For the disciples to say these things out loud, for them to articulate them, to say them in the presence of Jesus would have a way of making those lesser options look foolish. Let's consider the ways that they give him. First, some say John the Baptist. Now, Jesus certainly resembled John the Baptist in his preaching. Both men preached a message of repentance. But, a lot of people had seen Jesus and John together at Jesus' baptism. Remember, John said, there he is, look at him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus came into the water and asked John to baptize him. So, you know, that kind of response is sort of a strange one to me. I mean, we've seen them together. You know, Herod Antipas believed that Jesus was none other than John the Baptist, raised from the dead. But again, Herod Antipas had John beheaded. So John is dead. Makes it very hard for Jesus to be John the Baptist. Others believe that Jesus was Elijah. This this makes some sense. Both Jesus and Elijah conducted ministry that was marked by clear, convincing preaching and powerful, convincing miracles. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, so he never physically died. It makes sense that maybe people thought he had come back. He had returned. Others believe that Jesus was one of the prophets. A long list of maybe the prophets. Maybe Moses or Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea. You know, like Moses, Jesus declared the law of God. Like Isaiah, Jesus preached about sacrifice and holiness. Like Daniel, the message of Jesus was a prophetic message of a coming king with his kingdom. Like Jeremiah, Jesus carried out a ministry that was marked by compassion and brokenness and lament. Like Hosea, Jesus loved the unlovable, was willing to redeem lost, wretched people, no matter how sinful they might have been. You know, God had been silent for 400 years. There had been no prophets. Perhaps Jesus is a new prophet from God, or maybe he's an old one, just recapitulated for us, brought back for our benefit. That's what the people are saying. John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe one of the prophets. And we know through our study that there were other voices expressing other opinions about Jesus. The scribes, these men viewed as great teachers of the law, they said, he's Beelzebul. He performs his miracles by the power of Satan. He's in party with Satan. The Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish religion, the mighty Sanhedrin, they said that that Jesus is a blasphemer. 
He blasphemes God. He's worthy of death. His own family and friends said in Mark chapter 3, he's beside himself. The guy's gone crazy. He needs to be locked up. We'll try to help. We, we will. You know, in our day, the answers are no less clear or accurate about Jesus. The Muslim says that Jesus was a prophet, but he was not crucified on a cross. They don't, they don't think that happened. The Hindu believes that Jesus is just one of millions of gods. The Jew believes that Jesus was a great prophet and teacher, but that he's not divine, that he's not God. The Mormon believes that Jesus was the first baby born to God in heaven. He's not eternal. He's sort of the spirit brother of Lucifer, bizarre. The Jehovah's Witness believes that Jesus was once the archangel Michael, In their view, Jesus was never God in the flesh, never took on full human form. The agnostic just doesn't really even know what to believe about Jesus. The prevailing view in our broader society believes that, yeah, Jesus, he was a great teacher, he had some good ideas about loving others, but they don't really believe that he's a savior. They don't believe he's God in the flesh. They would acknowledge his existence, but they refuse to bow to his authority. They, re- they refuse to give him the worship that he deserves. They're so busy worshiping themselves. So we've got these swirling opinions about Jesus. And when you vocalize them, as I've done, you kind of see how absurd they are. And now we have the disciples. They've vocalized these, and they're underscoring and seeing how absurd these opinions actually are. Just woefully adequate descriptions of who this man is. They know it. Which leads Jesus to ask the more personal question. Verse 29, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered. Peter is now the established spokesman for the group. He answers with the first confession made in the book of Mark. You are the Christ. It's only the second time the word Christ has been used in the Gospel of Mark. First time is is in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We haven't heard that word in like eight chapters. The Greek word Christos. It's from the Hebrew, meaning anointed one. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus is his name. He's of Nazareth. Lord is his ultimate title. So why does Peter jump to the conclusion and say, you are the Christ or the Christos? It's because that's the word that defines the work that Jesus is doing. The word Christos didn't just mean anointed one. It had come to mean the anointed one, the Messiah, God's promised king. The office of king always involved an anointing or a kind of coronation But the Messiah wasn't just a king in a line of kings. He was the king, the king to end all kings, the king who's going to put everything right, the king who would would rule and establish his authority over all the earth, put his enemies under his feet. The Messiah, the king. Peter says, that's who you are. You are the Christos. picture it. They're in the midst of Caesarea Philippi against the 
just this backdrop of, of paganism and, and false religion in the shadow of a temple given to the worship of the king of Rome, of the emperor. Amidst all that, Peter saw in this humble, homeless carpenter from Nazareth, he saw the promised Messiah, the true king. And Peter's exactly right. He's right about the person of Jesus. But he's about to be blown out of the water concerning the plan of Jesus. Let's move to that second point. Wrong about the plan. In verse 30, Jesus again, he repeats his desire that what's just been confessed by Peter, that it be kept quiet. And the question there again is, is why? Why does he do this? I mean, this is the right answer given by Peter. This is a beautiful answer. Why the charge to keep quiet? Well, he's about to tell them why. Look at verse 31. It says he begins to teach them. And what he's about to teach them is going to crush any and every concept of the Messiah that they might have had. It's going to sort of reorganize centuries of established belief. So he's saying, you're right, I'm the king, but I am nothing like the king that you've been expecting. And so Jesus starts by saying, the Son of Man must suffer. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man was a figure revealed in the Old Testament Testament book of Daniel. This divine messianic figure who comes to put everything right. The Son of Man. But, but, But notice, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. Never before had anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah. And of course, there are many prophecies about a servant of the Lord who suffers, Isaiah 43 and 44 and 53 and Psalm 22 and and many others, but the notion that the actual Messiah figure would suffer, it made no sense at all to them. Because the Messiah, he was the one who was supposed to defeat evil and injustice. He was the one who was supposed to make everything right in the world. How could he defeat evil by suffering and dying? It seems ridiculous. It seems impossible even. But notice something else. Notice the use of the word must. By using the word must, Jesus is indicating that it's his plan to die. That he's doing it intentionally and voluntarily. He's not merely predicting that it will happen. But for him to do the work he's come to do, suffering has to happen. This is Jesus' first explicit reference to the cross in the book of Mark. He's going to do this several more times as we move through in chapters 9 and chapters 10, and ultimately as we arrive at the crucifixion. He's he's, he's telling us what's going to happen to him. And it is, it is plain language. This is not parable. This is not veiled in any way. The disciples completely understood what he was saying. He says, I must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, must be resurrected. Not just I've come to die, but I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. That I die. The world can't be renewed. Either can your life be renewed unless I die which causes the first of two rebukes that we see in the passage. Two rebukes. First, this causes Peter to to rebuke the man that he just called Christ. To rebuke the man that he just said is the Messiah. Peter straight up rebukes Jesus. It's 
the same verb used when Jesus drove out demons. Peter uses it on Jesus. Peter is condemning Jesus in the strongest possible language. So why is Peter so stirred up at this? Well, again, it's because Peter had always been told that when the Messiah came, he would defeat evil by ascending the throne, by laying hold of power. But Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah. I am the king, but I came not to live, but to die. I'm not here to take power, but to lose it, not to rule, but to serve. That's the way I'll put everything right. And this doesn't register with Peter. So he rebukes the man that he just praised, which appropriately incites a rebuke from Jesus. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan which doesn't mean that Jesus thinks Peter is Satan. But it does mean that Peter is taking on the adversarial nature of Satan. Satan is the adversary of Christ. Satan is the adversary of all who worship Christ. Satan's mission was to dissuade Jesus from the cross, and likewise his mission is to keep us from seeing the importance of the cross. So Peter's rebuke is putting him in party with the adversary, with Satan. He's being a stumbling block to Jesus, sort of this unwitting agent of the devil. So Jesus says, get out of my sight, Peter. Get behind me. I don't want to see you. I don't want to look at you. He rebukes Peter the same way he had actually rebuked Satan when he was tempted by him in the wilderness. And I think this is really sort of a practical thing to keep in mind. If anyone tries to preach Christ without preaching the essential nature of the cross, they are a stumbling block and an agent of Satan. You cannot exalt Christ, as Peter has done in verse 29, without explicit mention of what he came to do on the cross. There are lots of churches in lots of places preaching life tips and strategies about how to have a how to have more joy or a better marriage or less stress. But a lot of them are failing to preach the cross. Other ministries preaching about Jesus, that he was the model citizen and the prototype human and the great example to us. And yes, you know, his ethical teaching is world-changing, but divorced from the cross, it's all pointless. All of it, it's powerless. It says, Oswald Chambers wrote, in my utmost for his highest, he said, every doctrine that is not embedded in the cross of Jesus will lead us astray. This is why the word must in our passage is so necessary to understanding the mission of Jesus. Jesus must suffer. There are at least two reasons Jesus must suffer. And I'll just sort of have an elongated conclusion with these two things. First, there's a legal necessity for it. There's a legal necessity behind his suffering. And what I mean by that is when someone really wrongs you, a debt is established, a debt that has to be paid. Let me give you an example. What if you come over to my house on a motorcycle? Now, it's fun to, you know, think about Debbie or Sarah on a motorcycle. So what if you come over to my house on a motorcycle and you do donuts on my front lawn? You know, my beautiful fescue lawn that I care way too much about. What if you come and do that? 
Well, one of two things can happen as a result. Either I can make you pay for the damage, or I can say, I forgive you. But if I forgive you, what happens to the damage? I have to pay for it myself. Either you pay the cost for what was done, or I absorb the cost. So, let's make this hit home. Let's say someone robs you of an opportunity, robs you of happiness, robs you of reputation, or takes away something that you'll never get back. That creates a sense of debt, does it not? Yeah, it does. Justice has been violated. The person owes you. And when you acknowledge the debt, there, there becomes two things that you can do. One, you can try to make the person pay. Vengeance, right? You can seek to destroy their opportunities and their reputation. You can hope that, that they suffer or even see to it that they suffer. But there's a big problem with that tact. As you're making them pay, pay off the debt and making them suffer, you're also becoming like them. You're becoming harder and colder and more vengeful. And therefore, evil wins. Evil wins when you make the person pay. The other alternative is to forgive. But there is absolutely nothing easy about forgiving. Nothing easy about real, true forgiveness when everything in you wants to retaliate and strike back but you refuse to in an effort to forgive that is a really painful thing why because instead of making the other person suffer you're absorbing the cost you're suffering you're not trying to get your reputation back or the opportunity back you're forgiving them and that is costly. Pastor Tim Keller says, that is what forgiveness is. True forgiveness always entails suffering. Keller goes on to, he goes on to say, if we know that forgiveness always entails suffering for the forgiver, and the only hope of rectifying and righting wrongs comes by paying the cost of suffering, then it should not surprise us when God says, the only way I can forgive the sins of the human race, the sins against me that they've committed, is to suffer. God says either you will pay the penalty for sin or I will, end quote. The only way God can pardon us and not judge us is to go to the cross and absorb it, absorb it into himself. We did donuts on God's front lawn. We are in debt to him. Jesus said, I must suffer. That's for the legal necessity. There's also a systemic necessity. A systemic necessity to Christ's suffering and death. Jesus' death had to be an execution. He couldn't have just come and drank some poison and paid the price for sin. The writer of Hebrews said... Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And that is not a magical view of blood. It just points out that Jesus' life had to be taken from him. Taken from him by the hands of the very systems that he was coming to make right. James Edwards, commentator on the book of Mark, he explains this very well. He writes, The prediction of Jesus' death conceals a great irony. For the suffering and death of the Son of Man will not come as we would expect, 
at the hands of godless and wicked people. Rather, it comes at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Listen to this. It is not humanity at its worst that will crucify Jesus, but humanity at its absolute best. His death is the result of careful deliberations from respected religious leaders who justify their actions by the highest standards of the law and morality. Jesus will not be lynched by an enraged mob or beaten to death in a criminal act. He will be arrested with official warrants and tried and executed by the world's envy of jurisprudence, the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Roman law court. The cross reveals the systems of the world be absolutely broken and corrupt. Our best efforts at justice are unjust, and Jesus throws himself headlong into that. In condemning Jesus, the world was condemning itself. The way Jesus died reveals the bankruptcy of the world, but it also reveals the character of God. His death was not a failure. By submitting to death as a penalty, he breaks death's hold on him and on us. This is why Paul proclaims, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Because Christ broke it. Tim Keller, again, when Jesus went to the cross, he won through losing. He achieved forgiveness on the cross by turning the values of the world completely upside down. He did not fight fire with fire. He didn't come to raise a messianic army in order to strike down an oppressive Roman regime. He didn't take power. He gave up power, and yet he tried. On the cross, then, the world's misuse and glorification of power was exposed for what it is, and it was defeated. The spell of the world's system was broken. He must suffer and die. He must. The cross is not just a dramatic climax to a really important story. It is a cosmic event. And it's a personal event. Yes, he's going to set the world to rights, but he's actually going to set you right. He's going to reconcile your life to God. Jesus died your death in your place. His death was an injustice, but his suffering was the only way to uphold God's justice as he sought to forgive sinners. You and I are in the category of sinners. And the only way to be right with God and to take hold of his justice that he accomplished through Christ on the cross is to believe in Jesus. Is to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ and to say he is my only hope in death and life. Some of you have never done that or maybe you've scratched the surface of that or maybe you're still wondering really about what the fullness of that means. Stop waiting. Stop wondering. Don't, don't leave here today unsure. Christ suffered for you. There had to be suffering for you to be right with God. There had to be. He must suffer. Christ took that suffering upon himself. That was the cost of forgiveness. The summary of this passage is Jesus is a king but he's a king going to a cross. And next week, he'll say this. If you want to follow me, you're going to go to the cross too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.
thank you for this rich word. Thank you for the book of Mark and the way you've inspired him as a writer to sort of unfurl this revelation about Jesus. Father, I would ask that that each of us in this room, whether we've been walking with you for decades or whether we're still sort of unsure about this whole Christianity thing, Lord, that, that we would have a clear picture of Jesus because each of us in this room has to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Lord, and you tell us in the book of Matthew, this same scene, that it's by, it's by God's gracious revelation that Peter answers Christ. And so, Lord, we need your gracious and merciful hand of revelation in all of our hearts for us to see you for who you are, and then we can respond accordingly. Draw us to yourself. Grace us with illumination and ultimately salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see him for who he is and to never be the same because of what we've seen. A forgiven people who can be a forgiving people. It's in Christ's name we pray these things.